We do have a ton to get through in this episode. Common sense is finally prevailing. There was controversy this month, Dave. I'm not particularly excited by that. Secrets and things on set. I haven't told them anything. I think this is just good times all round. Every Doctor Who is liked by somebody and that's a really good thing. Davo, my Doctor. I know we disagree on this one. First world problems, Dave. I get why fans are asking those questions. Oh gosh, that's actually quite a lot to talk about. It doesn't compute. It's the elephant in the room. That's okay. Fandom versus the BBC. The cardinal sin. Moving along. Lunch. Hello and welcome to the Doctor Who Show. I'm Dave. And I'm Rob. And for the next hour or so, we are going to once again escape reality, talk about a fun little show about a guy who travels through time and space in a police box. We're going to particularly dive into season 11. Thank you to everyone who voted. But yeah, look, we're just here to have some fun. Rob, ready for some fun? I am absolutely ready for some fun, Dave. I think this is going to be a good one. Our deep dives into seasons, especially classic seasons, seem to really... Bring all the fans to the yard, as the kids say. (laughs) Yeah, they do. And look, I think it's fun to look back at these stories and just see what we all thought of them and see what other people thought of them. So yeah, look, I'm particularly looking forward to this season for a number of reasons that we'll get to during our main topic. It's good to speak to you again, Rob. It's been a couple of months since we did this on a main show. (laughs) That's right. That's right. I hope I remember how to do it, Dave. (laughs) No, that's fine. Well, look, let's, let's dive into it. And we'll start off, as we always do, with the news. Mm. And I'm always excited to talk about Target novels. And once again, I get to lead the news with a pretty exciting announcement because there are five more Target novels coming out in July of this year. I saw that. I, I, I saw that. And a couple of them are classic novels that have already been novelised, Dave. Yeah, so the first two of the five are The Stones of Blood and The Androids of Tara, mm. both by David Fisher. Look, I'm really excited because I like the Key to Time series. I really like those stories. I think they're really fun stories. But yeah, these were originally novelised by Terence Dix, and David Fisher has come out and done one as the original author, and he's writing the novel as he would like to. Now, I think they started life as a spoken word release. Yes, yes, there was some discussion of that. I think he must have put a script together for the uh, the audio version, and I guess someone has said, oh, look, this could very easily be turned into a novel, and here we are. It's going to be a novel. Yeah, so I'm excited about those two because they're two great stories being done by David Fisher, who's a pretty good writer. And then we have three novelizations of New Who stories. The Fires of Pompeii by James Moran, which should be pretty cool. Uh, I'm really excited by The Eaters of Light, which is being written by Rona Munro, because I I was a big fan of that story, and I think it's one as well that will translate into the literary form very, very well. Super underrated, that story. It really is. Rona Munro is a really good writer, and I think that'll work really well in print. And the final one is The Zygon Invasion by Peter Harness. This will be testing my collector's gene and my desire to own a complete set of Target books. Look, I'm shogged over the line, but um, I'm not really quite that desperate to dive into slightly racist doctors and slightly questionable and problematic (laughs) ideas. Um, But that's okay. I'm sure I will as a collector. Well, you know what? And it it pains me to say this because I am such a collector. I'm, I'm a collector of too many things, Dave. Not just Doctor Who, just too many things in general. I've given up on collecting the modern Target novels of New Who. 
Fair enough. Okay. Yeah, I've made that call because A, it will just take a long time to actually get there and collect them all, if they even put all of them out. And B, I'm just running out of space. I thought, should I just keep going with this collection? No, I'll just have the classic collection. But even now, I've got to make the choice. Do I keep... Well, I'm sure I'll keep the Terence Dix versions of those earlier novels we were talking about. But do I buy the David Fisher versions as well? Well, I mean, let's face it. We don't all have to go out there and pre-order these things. We can actually wait and see if they're any good and what our friends say about them. <laughs> That's so, true. Um, that, is, that is an option you have. And, you know, if I turn around and others say, hey, this is actually a really fun take on the stories and he writes really well, that's good. If I say, remember Eric Sayward's novelization of Resurrection of the Daleks? It's like that. <laughs> you might choose not to. Oh, God, and we have a companion jumping off a bridge and being superhuman and things. Oh, no. Yeah, let's <laughs> let's not go down there. But look, I, I, I love the Target books. They're a big part of my fandom. I'm excited for this. Alrighty. Moving on, bit of sad news, which has only just really happened as we're recording this episode. That's the uh, the sad death of Stuart Bevan, uh, who was 73. And people would know him, of course, as Clifford Jones in The Green Death, the, uh, the fellow who steals Joe Grant's heart and she runs off with him. And of course, in real life, he was engaged to Katie Manning as well for a couple of years back in the early to mid-70s. So, of course, Katie Manning led the tribute. She tweeted... First up, she said, the most beautiful man, poet, actor, screenwriter, husband and father to Coral Bevan and Miss Wendy Bevan went on his awfully big adventure. And in a follow up tweet, she said, uh, I was commissioned to write a short story for a collection and am midway through it. And my beloved Stuart is a huge part of my story. So I must continue and dedicate it to him with all my love. How blessed am I that he has touched my life and lit up my heart since 1971. And I thought, oh, gosh, you know, even though they've not been together for a long time, I mean, Katie Manning has famously been uh, Barry Crocker's partner for several decades at this point, an Australian entertainer, Barry Crocker. But uh, Stuart Bevan still obviously has a very big place in her heart and uh, just a very sad thing to see happen this week. Yeah, that was very sad. Obviously, his connection to Katie Manning makes it seem a little bit more profound as well. But I, I think it's worth reflecting that he's only in one Doctor Who story, but extremely memorable in that he's also in one episode of Blake 7 where he plays a relatively minor character you know he's only in one story uh, he plays a diplomat who is put in such an awkward p- position that he ends up being quite undiplomatic in the way he he talks about things <laughs> and, and but in both cases they're just very memorable wonderful performances and not because they're over the top and he's acting mm. they're just really Good performances. Yeah, yeah. So sad news, sad news. Now, new series stuff, news, mm. rumours, Rob. We now, I think, know for sure that the coming Sea Devils episode is going to be an hour long and is going to be broadcast at Easter, which was previously speculation, but I believe is now news. Yes. There's also been a lot of talk, and I think we have to touch on this, Rob, because there's been a lot of chat over the last month or so about the nature of the 14th Doctor. Now, I believe if we haven't already, we are very shortly about to click over into the longest period of time between a Doctor leaving the show being announced and the replacement Doctor being announced. So we knew Jodie was going some months ago now, but we still don't know who is going to replace her in the role. Mm. Part of that speculation was filled by 
David Tennant will be the 14th Doctor. That was a very strong rumour that has since sort of morphed and evolved into, depending on who you listen to, David Tennant will appear as something like the Doctor or the Doctor kind of, like, you know, sort of a war doctor or a caretaker type Doctor in part of an episode, in a suite of specials. Uh, the exact nature isn't sort of there. None of this is confirmed. This is just rumours that have kind of evolved into uh, a point where they now seem maybe credible. <laughs> but that's all. Yeah, I I don't know how these things start, whether someone just gets bored on a day at work and just makes it up or, or whether someone's thought, oh, well, Tennant's coming back to the show. I mean, we all assume he's coming back to the show for the 60th and it's been conflated into he's the 14th Doctor. I don't know. No, I, I don't think many people know. It could be complete speculation. It could be that RTD's company gave Tennant's agent a call and said, just sounding you out, what's his availability like in the next 12 months for any number of things? As you said, it could be for a multi-doctor story. Uh, we don't know. But the reaction again was interesting because... A lot of people were like, "Oh my God, this is amazing! This is this mm. is mind blowing! Why were they back?" <laughs> to which I said, "For a long time now, something of this nature has been speculated." And and I said more than six months ago mm. that I could see the BBC currently working through uh, what's known as the life cycle of Ricardo Montalban, albeit with David Tennant. <laughs> which is where, where, for those who don't know, Ricardo Montalban, um, famous for a sitcom the name which escapes me, um, Fantasy Island, and of course Khan in the <laughs> Star Trek series and movies. Uh, but he talked about his life as being, who is Ricardo Montalban? Get me Ricardo Montalban. Get me a Ricardo Montalban type. Get mm. me a young Ricardo Montalban. <laughs> Who is Ricardo Montalban? And and I've said for a while the BBC has been working through this over the last 20 years. Who is David Tennant? Get me David Tennant. Mm. Get me a David Tennant type. And now we're into the get me a young David Tennant phase. Now, the natural speculation of that is if you can get the real David Tennant, you probably get him. And if we've all been saying for a while, the show needs a little bit of a populist injection, just something to recapture that magic when we were in what you call our imperial phase. Mm. Get me a David Tennant type is a natural thing to do. And sometimes a David Tennant type might be David Tennant. So I don't know where this room is going, but it doesn't shock me at all that with RTD confirmed as the next showrunner, David Tennant as a vibe, if not a name, is in the mix. I could imagine RTD taking this and running with it in either direction. I can imagine him spinning it in either direction, Dave. I could imagine him saying, David Tennant again? I'm not going back to the past. That That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Like, maybe as a multi-doctor 60th anniversary thing, sure. But in general, like, bringing back David and making the 14th Doctor, that is absurd. On the other hand... Can you imagine him being like, oh, I think it's absolutely marvellous that we're bringing back David, <laughs> you know. We've, we've never done this before. What's it going to look like? He's a different character. Absolutely. And don't yeah. forget, at the time of the hiatus in 1995-86, there were people, not least of them Sidney Newman, who said, maybe we should get Patrick Troughton back. What's yeah. John Pertwee doing these days? Yeah. So, so It doesn't not... really make a lot of sense, but they no. have said it. <laughs> no. So, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. Mm. 
You've got a uh, little piece for us sort of segueing off that, Rob. I do, I do. And it's not even really news per se, although you would find it in your Google News if you were, you know, Googling this. And that's a Radio Times piece where they've got together with some, um, well, they've got the writer's tale out and they've got other pieces of Russell T. Davis uh, history. And they're trying to use that to plot what he might do in the new series of Doctor Who. And for one, they talk about Russell Tovey would be the most likely to be his next Doctor, given that, you know, he likes using the same actors in things. Russell Tovey seems to be someone who he's worked with many times. It's someone fandom is quite into as well. And they think, could Russell Tovey be the next Doctor? In a similar vein, they've gone back to when he was cooking up a companion not knowing if Catherine Tate would take the role. So if Catherine Tate didn't take the role, he cooked up this companion called Penny, who was a slightly older northern woman in her mid-30s. The type of person he wrote who would get up and just have a black coffee, and if it weren't Doctor Who, she'd also have a cigarette. That's very Penny, he said. So Radio Times are speculating, could he pull this Penny idea out of the box and have this older northern woman getting around? And so on and so forth. They go through like returning characters he might go to, and, and all of this, all up. The article isn't saying this is what he will do, but it shows you some of the places he's gone before and people he's worked with. And for whatever reason, those ideas weren't used. But could those ideas sneak out again in the future? It's a really fun thing to think about, Dave. I didn't take the article too seriously. It was just interesting, I think. No, there's a lot of speculation like that. And that, that does sound fun. And it's all perfectly reasonable. Um, somebody shared with me recently a very long leak apparently from inside the production company or inside the BBC and somebody who knows stuff and it was a very long thing of this is what the plan is and this is what it's going to look like and these are the people that have been sort of approached and da 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 and I read it all and I replied to the the person who sent it to me look not only is all of this quite credible it is so boringly obviously credible that it actually reads like if you were trying to fake a credible take this is what you'd write (laughs) Exactly. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, there's lots of this stuff flying around. I think we're going to start to hear a lot more soon, uh, but um, we just don't know a lot. No. So lots of speculation, hopefully some real news soon. Mm, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Uh, we haven't spoken on the main show for a couple of months, Rob, so we've got a couple of mini topics to get into before our main one. Yes. Uh, the first thing is a bit of a sort of a bit of an esoteric one I wanted to raise. Now, fair warning, uh, I am about to g- talk about Spider-Man No Way Home and mm-hmm. season 2 of The Mandalorian. Okay, now, I've seen one of them. Both of those are things that I think have been out for quite some time. Anybody who wants to see has probably seen the uh the spoiler aspects of them I'm about to talk about have frankly been in the mainstream news media, social media for some time. So I don't think mm-hmm. I'm going to spoil this for anybody. But if you are still completely unaware of the big moments in Spider-Man No Way Home or The Mandalorian, <laughs> skip forward two minutes because I'm going to talk about them in the context of Doctor Who. All right, I'll go make a cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> now, I went and saw Spider-Man No Way Home and Richard and I did a review for the podcast, which you mm-hmm. may have heard. I produced it, yes. <laughs> yes that's right. Um, <laughs> The moment when I was sitting in the cinema and Andrew Garfield appeared on screen and the audience cheered Mm. and then Tobey Maguire appeared on screen and the audience cheered and even even cynical old me sitting there just got a really good feeling in my heart of just, 
isn't this awesome? Mm. And it was really fun. Everybody, I think, is aware of the moment at the end of The Mandalorian Season 2 where all looks lost and then an X-Wing swings into view and somebody comes up through the elevator. He's wearing a black glove. He's got a green lightsaber. Oh, my God, it's Luke. And he's as cool as Darth Vader was in... Um, 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 what was Darth Vader cool in? Um, Rogue One. Rogue One, thank you. I'm really not remembering my names today. But, you know, he got that really cool moment and everyone went, oh, my God, yeah. my childhood is back. And, and I just sort of thought, how far are we away from Doctor Who actively trying to have those moments? Picard is another example. Patrick Stewart says, hey, I'd like to make another series. And everyone's like, great, all those people who were teens in the 90s have now got money and they watch TV. Get me in, get me Picard, get me a Picard series. And he's now in series two doing a series three. Now, Doctor Who is perhaps in some ways a little bit different because first mm. of all, we've long established this idea of the multi-doctor story and indeed have, have, have given multi-doctor appearances a certain level of almost sacredness that you you only do that if it's a very special occasion mm. uh, unless you're a big finish you've probably gone down that path a little bit much but but on tv like or the, the two doctors well again the two doctors even bent that a little bit as well but it's still seen as you know you you only do that when it's really important mm-hmm. and so that perhaps means that we are a little bit inoculated from just randomly here's colin baker for no apparent reason uh, we've also been able to have those sort of things before where Sarah Jane comes back, K9 comes back, and you get those little callbacks. So Doctor Who has perhaps normalised that for us for a while. But I just wondered as I sat there and I've seen more and more of this, is the BBC, is Bad Wolf Productions going to say, we need more of these moments? This is what sells. This is what gets likes on social media. This is what gets people to tune in. And suddenly we're going to see, I don't care how you do it, I want Sylvester McCoy to turn up in the next episode. Or I want Ace to be a character in this next one and have that big moment of, oh my God, Ace just turned up on my screen. (laughs) Do you think I'm making any sense there, Rob? Where where do you think we're going to go? Oh, well, I think you can go in two different directions. One is that they can observe this phenomenon that fans just want the old stuff. You know, and if you trot out the old characters and the old scenarios and all of that, it will sell and it will sell better than if they try to do new things. Now, I'm not a fan of The Last Jedi, but I will invoke it here as a Star Wars film that was going in a different direction and fans didn't like it. I also think it did some other silly things like killed off the big bad of the series, forcing them to (laughs) create a new big bad for the third film in a trilogy. That's absolutely bonkers. Uh, But we'll put that aside. I think the idea is that, yes, fans will go more for the nostalgia, particularly in a nostalgic series. Star Wars is, is over 40 years old. Doctor Who is approaching 60, you know. Star Trek you mentioned earlier as well all these older shows that have nostalgia sort of already baked into them I think it's a no-brainer so RTD can see this happening and really lean into it and I think that'd be quite cool I I think it'd be great if um, you know Sophie Aldred was the new Sarah Jane basically that she, she was the new Sarah Jane series or RTD and this is what I'm saying can go in the direction RTD could look at this and say no that's the that's the trend. That's what the fans want. I'm going to do something different because being different is important and 
in the long run it might be more interesting, etc. I don't know. It could go either direction. Again, like we were saying earlier, how he could spin bringing Tennant back two different ways. I could imagine him spinning this kind of thing two different ways. Like, oh, isn't it marvellous to have, you know, the, the new Sarah Jane Adventures, although now it has Ace in it. Isn't that marvellous? Or isn't it marvellous to do just new things that you've never seen before? And based on the interviews he's done so far, he seems to be suggesting he's doing things he's never done before. So what does that mean? Does that is that just a, a furphy? Is that just meant to put us off a bit? Or, or is that something that's really happening? And he is actually leaning in the... I'm just going to do some really new stuff. I'm not going to do this fan service stuff. And where does that leave the tenant room? It's all such a wrapped up ball of fanishness, Dave. <laughs> yeah, look, it is. And, and you're absolutely right in the, the couple of directions it can go. My, my mm. gut is that RTD doesn't want to go back to the well and wants to be a new showrunner and be a different yes. thing. And certainly he's he changed and evolved as a writer We've discussed this many times over the last 10 years. But, again, I just sat there and I listened to the audience cheer and I thought, is this just is this just going to be crack cocaine for TV? Mm. And they just won't be able to say no. But, you know, it's a game of diminishing returns. Already, reviewers of Disney series, even people who enjoy the Disney Star Wars series, are saying that they are bringing back too many things. I mean, I pointed out on our Book of Boba Fett episode, the scene in Toshi Station in one of those episodes, and that scene in Toshi Station isn't even in Star Wars. It's a cut scene. So they're homaging cut scenes to, you know, give the fans a thrill. How often can you do that? You know, I mean, in, in Doctor Who, there are, I guess, monsters that were going to be on screen and never made it. Maybe you could pull one of those out of the archive and, and suddenly have an adventure with this monster who's never been seen before or something. But I think you've got to push forward. You've still got to do new stuff. Otherwise, people start saying, oh, yeah, it's that series where they just go hark back to the past all the time. Is, is it like season 20 of Doctor Who? I don't know, Dave. Yeah, and, and maybe there'll be sort of, you know, a little from column A and a little from column B. But no, it is mm. something that did sort of intrigue me. I wanted to have a bit of a chat about it, throw it out to our listeners. And as always, be fascinated to hear your comments. Uh, Rob, you did a Twitter poll. <laughs> I, I did a poll, Dave. I did. <laughs> and uh, I'm just pulling it up now so we get a live snapshot of it. It still has 16 hours to run at the time we're uh, doing this. There have been 302 votes, which is pretty damn good yeah. uh, for a poll. And the question I put out there is, will the final Whitaker episode slash BBC centenary episode in October or November this year, whenever it comes out, put all the toys back in the box? Example, Gallifrey and the Time Lords return, or the universe that was destroyed in Flux returns. Uh, maybe the nature of the Doctor's pre-Hartnell memories is finally finalised. I mean, she, she took the pocket watch and threw it down into the depths of the TARDIS but then said, hide it, but if I really, really ask for it, you know, sort of give it back to me. So there's sort of some ambiguity as to how that might play out. And we've got the responses. People saying yes. Chibnall will somehow, in this final episode, get all the toys back in the box and sort of reset things. 40.4%. No, 55.3%. And other, 4.3%. So it seems 
that the majority, well, it is the majority, are saying, no, the, the universe will remain half destroyed. The Doctor's memory still might remain in flux, no pun intended. And Gallifrey and the Time Lords might be stuffed. They, they might be gone for all time, Dave. I found that very interesting. Yeah, I if, if I'm if I'm voting what I think will happen, then I agree with the majority of the votes on your poll. I, I I don't think it's all going to be wrapped up with a nice big bow and left in a nice little neat spot with a full stop, ready for the next production company. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think that's the mm. nature of the series, and I just don't think there's enough time to even remotely get all that done and and, and do it all unless there's. You know, just a massive, great, big red button that they push and it just does everything magically, which yeah. is not impossible. Well, it's a Chibnall thing. There was that Power 3 thing where he just waved his sonic screwdriver and half the Earth's population came back alive after throwing a heart attack, wasn't that the, the story? It is, line? which is why I say it's not impossible. Look, I, <laughs> I would like it to be neatly wrapped up and a bow put on it and a full stop typed because I would like the series to do a bit of a reset. I'd like the series to be freer and less encumbered by anything mm. in the past. And, and by that, as I've said before, I would be very comfortable, in fact, in some ways in favour of a hard reset and going, you know what, this is adventure number one. And when the Doctor meets the Daleks for the next time, he meets them for the very first time and their backstory is a blank slate. The next time he goes and meets the Master, he meets the Master for the first time and the backstory is a blank slate. And they can do whatever they want with those monsters, characters and, and the Doctor and, and the rest of it. I'll be very open to that. I don't think they're going to do that. I think that would just be too big a break. Um, I'd find that hard to live with, honestly, because I think you'd have the Doctor meeting the Master for the first time and... I just don't think the writers could resist throwing in little arch references to the actual relationship we already know they have had, you know, even though it's meant to be an all-new relationship. I'm not sure they could do it in a satisfying way for me. I, I, I think I'd just be too distracted the whole time. Yeah, and that, that's definitely going to be a an issue with it. Look, as I say, I think that's very unlikely. I think the most likely thing is that Chibnall wraps up a few plot points, a few are left out there, and it's kind of there for RTD to pick up or leave as much as he wants. That's most likely what's going to happen. Part, mm. Partly because I just don't have any faith that Chris Chibnall can wrap up all the loose threads that we've got in the space of two episodes, particularly one of, one of them is going to be apparently a romp with sea devils. Yeah, romp with sea devils and uh, Chinese pirates and things like that. And look, for, for mine, and I mentioned this to someone on Twitter earlier this week, it just underscores that all this, oh, let's blow up Gallifrey, let's do all this big stuff, it's utterly meaningless in the end. Like, what have we actually achieved by blowing up Gallifrey in that story with the, the Cyber Lords and the Master and all that? What did it really achieve? Was anyone really, oh my God, they blew up Gallifrey? Were there, were there tears online? Were people shocked? No. You know, and where did it get us? All it does is take a playing piece off the board that you might want to play with. You might not want to play with it for five years or ten years. But now you can't play with it, or if you want to play with it, some future showrunner is going to have to bring it back somehow. And then we've got rid of it, we've brought it back, we've got rid of it, now we're going to have to bring it back. I just find that so silly. Don't kill off people, don't blow up planets, unless you really, really, really want it to be final. And for something as central as Gallifrey and the Time Lords, I just think it's stupid to have got rid of them again. I find it dumb. Well, we'll know more at the end of the year. <laughs> we certainly will. 
like a lot of people across the UK, I and, and indeed Australia now, the, the, the Australian sets are arriving. I received and have watched some of my Season 17 Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. Now, because I've had to dive into watching all of Season 11 for this podcast, I didn't have time to watch two whole classic series in the last three weeks, but I, I have watched a few bits of the Season 17 Blu-ray, and I just wanted to say how much fun I'm having watching it. Once again, all the extra documentaries, all the little special things have been really well done. I watched some of The Nightmare of Eden with the new special effects, and Mm -hmm. they are very well done. I would say easily this is the best new set of special effects that I've seen on any of these releases. Uh, Oh, wow. it, It was interesting, though, that you can see how just how good Dudley Simpson is at matching his score to the visuals on the story because when you completely redo the special effects and now the the spaceships act in much better but very different ways in terms of the speeds they go and how they travel and all the rest of it you, you do sort of notice that Dudley's music doesn't quite match anymore oh no <laughs> which is it, it's interesting I, I, I'll be interested in your view when you see that Rob if you feel the same but look mm. excellently done but something that has gone I think completely under the fandom radar yeah. is the new version of Sharda with the animated missing bits, the old cast back to do all the voice recordings. That is like watching a whole new story. And I'm very really? familiar with the 94 video release with, you know, Tom Baker, Sharda, Romana was <laughs> appalled. You know, you know, I'm very familiar with, with that one. But, you know, let's be honest, 40% of that story is missing. And, yes. and, and as you get to sort of part five, there's only about two scenes recorded and Tom does about three sentences to get you through. Mm. And, and look, the animation isn't fantastic, but it's more than good enough to keep you in the story and let you know where everything's going. And I was just blown away by how well this was done. So I, I'm kind of amazed that we've got this. I don't, I don't know whether it's shard of fatigue. Because we, I think it is. Because we've had the video release. We've had the bootleg and Levine release. We've had the audio release. We've had the book. We, we had that standalone one where Tom Baker appeared at the end as a very old man. Yes. Uh, we've had the Paul McGann version of Sharda. So, yeah, so... Yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah, I, I kind of get it. Everyone's like, I'm not another Sharda. It's gone from, you know, the missing story to the most produced story. Absolutely. But this this is genuinely good. And if you have got Sharda fatigue and have not dived into it, do it. It is fantastic. Oh, that's great. Well, look, earlier tonight, I, I tweeted a picture of my season 17, which has arrived. I've uh, finally picked it up from where I get all my mail sent. And I said, look, I've seen all the stories a bazillion times, but I'm really looking forward when I get the time to watching all the special features. I love the special features on the Blu-rays. I'm so appreciative of the teams who make them. Yeah, no, some real love going on there. It's a really good release. Mm. Final one, a quick one, and more of a plug for the show in some ways. I've started putting up old episodes of Us, Dave, on YouTube. Now, I know you've seen at least one of these because I showed you one as like a a, a trial run. Yes. And the, the concept here, dear listener, is we have a lot of episodes now. This is our seventh year of the show. 
And there are episodes that people might think about delving into and then they think, oh, but it's got all this old news at the start and there's some short topics I have to wade through. And the actual meat of the thing comes about probably half an hour into the episode or whatever. And then there's an outro where the guys are talking about what films they've just watched and all of this. And it might not be as palatable as it could be. So I've gone back and I've started snipping just the main topic from the old episodes and sticking it up on YouTube, which is not our podcast feed, obviously, so we're not doubling up on the podcast feed, we're putting it on a new platform, just with a generic sort of geometric image swirling around on the screen while we talk. And it's just a new lease of life, I think, for these episodes, Dave, and I'm really excited about how they're going so far. I I love just taking these topics. We've done some great topics over the years, you know. (laughs) Yeah, look, they're there for people who want them, and I've watched one and found it very weird to have my voice coming out of the television <laughs> but yeah as, as you as you say if, if you're not interested in what was happening in the news in 2018 mm. <laughs> you just want to listen to what we thought of the, about the key to time you can do that yeah exactly exactly right so that that's all out there if you look us up on uh, youtube folks excellent now, time to dive into our main topic. Speaking of main topics, time. Oh, yes. And if you're watching this on YouTube in the year 2025, welcome. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> and you've just, you've just missed an in-joke that's been cut out. So you see, you should have been listening to us in 2022. There's there a there's go. a long playing gag ready to go. That's <laughs> <laughs> the long game, Dave. It is the, I love the long game. It's a good episode. Underrated. But we're not here to talk about the, the long game. As, no. as always, we nominated a couple of seasons each for you, the listener, to vote for we have 143 votes and on this occasion whilst second third and fourth all swap places a lot one season hit the lead and stayed there and won decisively season 13 got 18.9 percent of the vote season 26 which was doing very well last time we put it up yes only came third with a mere 20.3 percent of the vote i was shocked i was a bit surprised by that as well season Mm. 15 25.9, but a nearly 10-point win for Season 11 with John Pertwee, 35%. A strong leader all the way through. Yeah, how can we argue with the uh, the listeners, Dave? No, absolutely. And look, I'm very happy to talk about this. And I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, there was a moment when I had a little bit of worry because I thought, what can I say about this season? But if I could just kick us off, Rob, with sort of a bit of nostalgia. Yes. This is... I am very confident I can say the season of Doctor Who I have watched the most in my life. Really? And I can say that because this was clearly the point at which my dad decided that video recorders were not just for recording what you missed while he was at work, but for actually recording series and stories and keeping them to watch again and again and again. So this Mm. is the first season where we had almost the whole thing from the start to finish on VHS off air. It wasn't just odd episodes or odd stories. It was the whole season pretty much with only one or two episodes missing when we were in Queensland as it happened. So not only did we have it on VHS, but this was repeated and recorded when I was about five. So I was exactly the right age to go and rewatch all of these stories again and again and again, particularly a couple of favourites I have in there. They were just watched so many times. And so this is the season that I am the most familiar with. In in some ways, therefore, it's the one I haven't watched all that much 
over the last few years, and one or two stories I haven't watched for quite a while, because mm-hmm. they sort of seem a little bit too familiar. You're like, oh, I know that story off by heart. Why would I watch it? Go and watch something I don't watch very often. Yes. So this has been a really lovely experience going back and watching it. I'll wax lyrical a little bit more, but Rob, what, what are your memories of this season? How did you come to it? I have a very different experience to you, Dave. Right. Because although Pertwee was one of the more repeated doctors in Australia in general, I didn't have a good sense of his era as a whole until I'd gotten into fandom a bit. I hadn't been watching it on TV. I'd missed a lot of him on TV somehow. But when I got into fandom and had access to other fans' tapes, that started to change things. You know, I can remember as a very young fan, probably circa 87-ish, I was pestering our local fan club president to do me a, a VHS dub of The Demons, and I was very taken with that story. And in fact, when I met Katie Manning the first time, I got her to sign The Demons novel. So I did sort of start to get into the Pertwee era around the time I got into fandom around 87. But even then, I had a problematic time with him as a younger fan. I just wasn't sure I liked the era. I liked the demons very much, but a lot of the other stories I didn't like. Something just didn't click with the portrayal or the look of the era. Maybe it was all that damn CSO or something. Ah, very, very conflicted over the era. And as such, I didn't sort of see season 11 in any sort of coherent way like watching it on tv night after night or even watching vhs tapes in the right order Uh, you know it was probably when the dvds came out that i watched it properly and even then probably not in the right order now that i think of it um so i've come at it from a very different direction to you no that's really interesting we are coming at it from very different directions because i can remember very much watching the pertwee era again and again and again on repeat you know there'll there'll be a repeat of the pertwee era then they'll do season 24 then there'll be a repeat of the pertwee era some intricate stories and then season 25 repeat of the pertwee era maybe some graham williams stories season 26 repeat of the pertwee era repeat of the pertwee era you know i i grew up with (laughs) that's that's what i mean you know it was one of the more repeated doctors i remember watching tom like that i can remember watching tom until it came out my ears yeah but pertwee is this I don't know how I miss so much of it. I really don't. And yeah, absolutely. And certainly growing up, Pertwee was my favourite Doctor. And so there's there's a lot of nostalgia. And I suspect I'm, I could end up using the phrase as a boy quite a bit <laughs> in our discussion here. So that's where I'm coming from. But I, I have taken the chance to watch this season as a whole from start to finish with fresh eyes. And, and as I do with these reviews or these, these discussions... I don't know if you're the same as me, Rob, but sometimes when you sit down and you watch a classic Doctor Who that you're very familiar with, you might sort of not feel guilty if you go and do a couple of things while it's on. Like, I'll put it on and I'll start cooking dinner and I'll be cooking mm-hmm. dinner and then I'll go and watch it again whilst eating dinner. Or if I get a message mm-hmm. on the phone, you know, it doesn't matter if I miss the next scene because, you know what, I know this story off by heart. Exactly. Whereas when I'm going back to watch these things now for the podcast, I do make a point of actually watching it and not no distractions laptop shut phone off well not phone off but phone you know to the side and so that's that's the way in which i've launched into this here uh opening comment these are my favorite title credits i love them i think the the very initial the first few seconds of these credits still looks like the most modern thing doctor who has ever done in its credits with those stars that come at you i think it still looks amazing yeah it, it really does it, it it's timeless yeah. And it really just works so, so well. And 
Pertwee looks good there. You've got the first iteration of the diamond logo, and it's it's colourful without being garish. Mm-hmm. I think it's really, really lovely. Um, would you mind if I get us started on the Time Warrior then? Oh, please. As I was watching the Time Warrior, particularly part one, I thought RTD could have written this. Mm-hmm. This is an RTD season opener because it's extremely accessible. It's extremely fun. There's some really good banter. There's a really cool monster. And the budget is actually being spent very, very well. Lots of location filming, lots of extras, a really cool little spaceship. It feels as though they've spared no expense on this. And and Barry Letts is really at the heart of his powers in his fifth season, knowing how to make a budget work for him. Mm -hmm. There's always action going on. There's always something happening. You're never bored with this one. Even if it's just, you know what, in part three, we're just going to have Iron Gron come and attack the castle and the Doctor throws stink bombs at him. Does it <laughs> add to the plot? Nope, but it's a very enjoyable episode. And and that's how I felt about the whole thing. I just go, this was just easy fun, almost deceptively easy fun from Robert Holmes. What did you think? Dave, it's not a story I've ever been that into. I've come to appreciate it a lot more as an adult but it's still not a story like oh my god the time where oh amazing i've i've never been like that and i feel like something's wrong with me when i say that because this is bob holmes who i love and i know a lot of people love this but i just can't get enthused about it at all i see that location filming i see that the sontarans are an awesome awesome new creation and it's partly designed but i also think it's partly kevin Lindsay. i think kevin Lindsay brings so much to it as well i'm probably not the first person to say it but just like bernard breslaw sort of defined ice warriors i think kevin Lindsay defines sontarans sure. yep you know so i do see all of this i'm not i'm not blind to this i don't want you to think i'm, I'm actually crazy but i've just never got that enthused about it i it's weird. It's a weird one for me. I kind of see a little bit of where you're coming from because I, I, I agree a tiny bit with this and also with the Carnival of Monsters. They're both stories that a lot of people put in their top three, top four Pertwees. And I sort of go, well, it's good, but it's not that good. It's not top five, maybe even not top ten for me. Mm. But then you watch it, and I think it's the same with Carnival. I watch it and go, this is just deceptively easy. And maybe... Robert Holmes's gift in these ones is we can't see all the moving parts. We're just enjoying it. And, and you know, another thing that I loved, I really appreciated just properly watching it this time and focusing on the acting and the, the characters is that you've got alien Sontaran, great beard, weird, weird mask. You've got Iron Grong, over the top, medieval baron, pirate guy. And they're mm. still having this really clever, witty dialogue. And both the actors are playing it over the top, but sincerely. And and I really enjoy that banter between them. I love the moment when Iron first sees Lynx without his helmet for the first time. And it's something very rare in Doctor Who. Like maybe someone will see an alien and shriek for a bit, but you know, then we all move on. But there's just several seconds of Iron Gron suddenly go, what the f- You go. <laughs> it's just amazing. And you know, that, that lovely little cut between Link's primitives, if I did not need their help, and then the next scene, Iron Toad Face, if I didn't need his help. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I just you know, really enjoy it. Uh, it's a great opening for Sarah. What do you think of Sarah's intro? Well, we talk about the Chibnall era being a bit ham-fisted with concepts and causes, Dave, 
And Sarah Jane is set up as this women's lib type, and we'll certainly talk about that with regard to another story here as well. <laughs> we will. And um, suddenly there's a load of really sexist content in the story for her to rail against. Presumably, if that wasn't the course her character was taking, there wouldn't be as much sexist content in the story. And I think, oh, I'm not so sure about this. Like, women's lib, great. But, yeah, it it feels almost Chibnall-esque the way that's sort of done. Yeah, okay. I I, I see that. I must admit it didn't really... Maybe because I've seen it so many times, I'm a little bit enamoured to it. I think Mm -hmm. that's definitely a, a possibility. But... I was very struck by Elizabeth Sladen's presence and strength from the moment she's introduced. I love the way that the Doctor very quickly calls her bluff about being Lavinia Smith. And the Doctor, being the Doctor, is just like, okay, look, you're probably a spy. I don't care. I'm just going to roll with it because I'm having fun. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. And, and, I, and look, we'll talk more about Pertwee as we go on, but... This is Pertwee extremely comfortable and confident in the role and just working his way through stories in a way that's slightly endearing, slightly off-putting and alien, but effortlessly so. Yeah, like every Doctor going into their final series, he's really got the idea here, I think. Yeah, he, he absolutely does. And I just find it so endearing, even when he's being annoying, which I think is part of the charm. Hmm. Now, question without notice. Yeah. The Doctor knows the Sontarans in this. He knows them already. He's not meeting them for the first time. Do you retrospectively headcanon this that because Troughton met them in the two Doctors, that's how he knows them by the time he's Pertwee? Or given that the way his time stream is sort of messed up in the two Doctors, that just Pertwee got to know them some other way, perhaps? I have taken it as neither. I think that I've always taken it as the Santaran Root and War is such a big deal mm-hmm. that it's the sort of thing that Gallifreyans learn about in school. Everybody knows the history of the Santaran Root on War and right. what a Santaran looks like. So when he sees it, he's like, oh, I think that's a Santaran. And then when he meets things properly, he's like, yeah, I thought so, you're a Santaran. And and even that banter, because you know, when we get the initial dropping of Gallifrey's name, and there's that banter about, you know, well, we could take over Gallifrey if we wanted to, you're pretty weak, well, I dare you to try. <laughs> that, again, sort of gives this idea of they're both big deals in each other's worlds. Mm. So I, I always took it that way. So when he's been having his classes in Lungbarrow yes. with uh, Badger, yes. uh, he's been taught this. I, that that's what I thought. Yes, you know everybody's heard of Sontarans. Right. Good. Invasion of the dinosaurs, Rob. Malcolm Hulk story, Dave. Malcolm Hulk story. And look, I know we're both card carrying members of the fan club for this story, and <laughs> I think that needs to be disclosed up front before we say anything else. Yeah. But what can I say? I think in general, it's one of those stories that has a reputation around one thing and then a lot of fandom can't see the wood for the trees and you have a lot of people who have never even seen it start proclaiming that it's a lot of old rubbish in this case in relation to the dinosaur models that always gets brought up with this story and yes they don't look great in some of the scenes in some of the scenes they look all right actually they do yeah but has doctor who dave ever had to apologize for one aspect of itself quite as much as this story no, and I think that that is mm. exactly the right place to start. You mentioned the, the the official invasion of the Dinosaurs fan club, of which we are patrons, yes. uh, a, a, along with a couple of others. And I know our friend of the podcast, Mark from Diddly Dumb, would be very upset if we didn't mention his name as the, uh, the founder of the club. <laughs> hello, Mark. <laughs> so, hello, Mark. Uh, look, 
you're right, but I think that what's interesting, and I, I don't bring this club up just to be facetious, it is a thing that I've noticed on social media and Doctor Who fandom, particularly Doctor Who Twitter, more and more people are sort of joining those conversations when it comes up and goes, yeah, I saw that when it came out on DVD and it's actually really good and I had no idea. And <laughs> as people are watching, I think its reputation is ascending quite, quite well. Mm. Now, just again, talking about how we discovered this series, I, for a very large part of my life, was convinced that Invasion of the Doctor Invasion of the Doctors. Now, that's, that could be the 60th anniversary story. RTD. RTD. Yeah. Get him on the line. I've, I've copyrighted it. Uh, Invasion of the Dinosaurs was a five-part story because the ABC didn't have the black and white part one. And so they would just start it at the start of part two. And I just always thought, well, this is really clever. The Doctor arrives in the middle of an adventure and we just roll with it. And, and they did. I noticed this time there were a couple of lines in part two that were cut. So there's a line about, well, what about when we met that pterodactyl last episode? That that's actually been was was cut. So I didn't didn't know that. Because of that, episode one when I watched on DVD still feels a little bit newer than the rest of the story. And watching it again, I realised just how creepy that part one is, and how effective the whole abandoned London with something going on and rules in the background is. I'm surprised that the first reveal of the dinosaur isn't the cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. Fair. But but I just think that's that's really good. Uh, and it goes on from there with lots of really good adventure stuff happening. Yeah. How much do you think that first episode is enhanced, though, by being in black and white? Like the first time I saw the demons, when I got that VHS dub of the demons I was talking about earlier, that was in black and white too because that's how it had been shown on Australian TV. I think it adds to it being in black and white. Yes, I don't think that it's all down to it being in black and white, but certainly that enhances an already creepy and tense episode. Again, and I'm going to for the first time use the phrase as a boy. As a boy, this was just fantastic. This was the my most watched Doctor Who story. Six, seven, eight-year-old boy, Doctor Who and dinosaurs. Come on. Like, how mm. is that not on regular rotation? And, and it absolutely was. But it still stands up as an adult. And, and look, let's talk about the politics thing here because this is a story that is often thrown up when people say I can't believe how terrible Orphan 55 was and it had a political agenda <laughs> look at Invasion of the Dinosaurs they've been doing this for 50 years and you go yeah look, you're absolutely right Doctor Who has but, but. there is something about this that it works so much better and part of it is that first and foremost this is a wonderful adventure story and particularly as a kid you were just excited because around every corner there could be a Tyrannosaurus Rex. The scene in the air hangar where that dinosaur comes to life and Sarah's trying to escape and it's beating its tail against the window and then it smashes its way through and then it bursts through the brick walls. As a kid, that could have been a Jurassic Park special effects. It certainly was in my mind. Um, mm. That was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. So it, it works on that level. It works on the level of them being really good characters. And then the story is f- allowed to flow within this adventure in a really effective way. But the other point I'm going to make is that a lot of politics isn't about one thing or not that thing. Mm-hmm. It's about we kind of all agree on the outcome we want, but we disagree on how to get there. Mm. And what I think sometimes modern who does is say, we are for this thing, and if you're not, you're bad. Yeah. Whereas what Invasion well, of the Well, that's Dinos- social media all well, over that's, that's as well, Well, that's social actually. media, yeah, that, that's, that's 2022, that, that, that is. 
Whereas what Invasion of the Dinosaurs is doing is saying, you know what, the good guys and the bad guys here all actually want the same thing. Mm. Some people are just willing to go to amazing extremes to get what they want. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and Hulk is saying, as somebody who was very politically active and who was of the left of politics, yeah. he's saying when you take any view to the extreme, you can sometimes miss the point of what you're going for, and that's a really dangerous thing. And I think that's a really clever and effective way to do it. The Green Death is very, very similar in that as well, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. This this is a really fun story with a lot going on. And I think it's worth noting that the dinosaur models, again, to come back to that, I don't think they're even used as much as they could be because we sort of move on from that. And there's all that stuff that happens later in space or what we think is space, you know, and all of that stuff's marvellous. There's all this other aspect to the story that people just sort of forget about or maybe they've not seen the story so that they don't know it's there i don't know yeah and and look we need to mention that whole space plot because that's a really clever idea and again you see good people you know the elders on those spaceships are good people who want good things Mm. going a bit too far they've sold their house dave they've sold their house they look into it very carefully and it's funny it says on the side somebody somebody actually mentioned that that thing on Twitter the other day and said, how could he have gone so carefully into this thing? You know, who had, had any research? I said, you know what? I can point you to a few dozen people on Twitter right now who are giving us views of reality that we know are complete bunker, but they will say they've gone into it very carefully. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's not a, not a new thing. No. Uh, but, but that moment where Ruth, who is clearly a good person and wants a good and better world, says, you know what? If she doesn't come around to our way of thinking, we might just have to eliminate her. Yeah. That's that's chilling. That's yeah. properly chilling. And so it, it, it works really well there. Question without notice for you, Rob. Oh, okay. Operation Golden Age. Yes. Where and when were they planning to go had the Doctor not interfered and they'd gone back to their Golden Age? I, I guess some sort of, what, a pre-industrialised world? You see, this is what I don't know. Now, as a kid... I thought that they were going back to the age of the dinosaurs because they got dinosaurs from there, so they're going back there. Very fair assumption, but it would be quite dangerous, yeah, I Yeah, they, they would be eaten pretty quickly. And then I'm sort of like, well, are they going back to the 12th century, 14th century, pre-industrialisation? But how's a bunch of middle-class Londoners, you know, a few hundred of them, going to convince the population of Elizabethan Earth not to chop down the forest to build a navy? Um, mm, you know, mm. how are they going to stop the Cold War? Are they going back to the age of, you know, Neanderthal or maybe, you know, Australopithecus or maybe a little bit later and they're going to try and guide primitive man for the next 50 years until they all die? Um, and and maybe the fact mm. that it is just a bonkers plan is part of the point. But Well, there was no golden age, Dave. There was no golden age. So <laughs> that's right. So that's always intrigued me. Uh, the final comment I had is... I love the development of Mike Smith here. And yes, this, yes. this adds to that sense that the Pertwee era, again, like the RTD era, is an era with characters that flow all the way through that, that come and go, that have genuine arcs. The Doctor himself develops. Joe changes and develops as a character. And Mike Yates is shaped in this story by what's happened to him in a previous story. And that just, particularly for 1974 just makes it feel like slightly better than we've had before. 
and there's a flow-on effect to another story we'll talk about in a moment. There is, so I think it just all mm. works really well. Uh, any more dino comments from you, or do you want to move us on to Daleks? I'm ready to move on to Death to the Daleks, Dave. Please take us there. Terry Nation on board, writing a Dalek story. This is very exciting stuff. It is. But let me tell you, it's another one it took me a long time to get on board with. And I don't have the ability to crawl back into my 12-year-old mind and tell you why that might be. Could it have been the Daleks had machine guns instead of death rays? It could be, but I kind of think that's amazing now, so I'm, I'm not sure. Did I find the Exelons just a bit weird and hard to understand what they were doing with all that sort of sacrifice stuff? Maybe. I don't know. But on rewatches as an adult in recent years, I find I quite enjoy this, albeit with a few bits that make me go, hmm. But on the positive side, Dave, I like the concept of everything losing power because a disabled TARDIS is quite a scary thing to contemplate. Yeah. I like the concept that the Exelons had contact with the Incas and that's been deduced via the, the temple carvings they can see in the two different places. I like the concept of the Daleks with machine guns, like I mentioned earlier. I like the concept of the Doctor and Bilal getting through the, the traps in the Exelon city and the, the pair of Daleks are on their tail throughout. And I like the concept of the Daleks being a bit brutal. At the end, they're like, okay, we've got the, um, what's it, what is it, the perineum, uh, and now we're going to plague bomb the planet, you know, and you're all stuffed. Brilliant. That That is super Dalek-like. That's what Daleks should do. So there's a lot of positives. I'll, I'll get to some negatives later. What if I throw it back to you for the moment? This was another regular repeated video watch for me when I was a kid. If you'd asked me at the age of about 10 what my favourite Dalek story was, I would have said Death to the Daleks. Really? Now, at that stage, I hadn't seen a lot of Dalek stories, certainly the black and white ones, and where I had, I you know, hadn't quite learned to appreciate them yet, and some of the others just didn't quite have the sense of fun that this had balanced with the Daleks being really, really cool. And, mm. and you're right, okay, the Daleks are helpless. They don't sit around and go, we're helpless for too long, they work out, how can we get a gun? And then to prove that they're back, they burst into the town square, so to speak, of the Exelons, and just shoot a bunch of them. <laughs> To yes. go, just so you, we're in no, in, in no doubt, we're back and we're deadly. That's really effective. I think that's really good. But it, I just thought it was a really cool, and still do, frankly, a really cool space adventure. Daleks, aliens, great special effects. The city, as you said, that trek through the um, excellent city really captured my imagination. I think it works really, really well. Do I still think it's the best Dalek story? No, I think there's a lot more sophisticated stuff, particularly in those 60s Dalek stories. I think I appreciate Day of the Daleks as an adult a lot more than I did as a kid because mm. of the concepts that were going on in there. Uh, but there's still some good stuff going on in here. Now, you, you highlighted there the Dalek plan. I want to come back to that in a moment. But mm. even as an adult, you watch some of the internal politics of the Space Corps. As a kid, I never really picked up on that moment where Galloway hears his commander's dying words. You know, you're not fit for command, hand command over. And he's just, uh, sorry, commander, I didn't quite catch that. Yeah. And then he goes and he leads the expedition and he's brutal and he's ruthless and he's, he's sacrificing a certain sense of humanity to get what he wants. But he's the one who sacrifices himself at the end. Now, mm -hmm. did he do that because he had a change of heart? Or did he do it because Commander Stewart's right? He is a glory seeker. And he knows the way to have his name go down in the history books. The guy who sacrificed his life to prevent this plague. Yeah, I think a bit of the latter. A bit of the latter. So there is proper 
stuff going on here. I've got a couple more points, but Rob, let's have your negatives. Yeah, well, look, one of the the things that made me go, hmm, I'll, do, I'll just concentrate on this one. I'm less down in this story with the way the perineum is treated because that's ultimately the reason anyone's there at all. The Daleks are there for it. The humans are there for it. Yet the humans seem to be really ill-equipped at getting it. And even later when the Daleks are getting the Exelons to get it for them, it's just some Exelons sloshing around in a puddle in a, in a quarry to mine it. It seems a little odd. And even then, when it's loaded onto the Dalek saucer, it's literally a few sacks. You know, sacks? It's like the gold rush in the US. It's like the 1800s or something. They've got these old burlap sacks. Why couldn't it have been something modern and at least trying to look like it's solid and hygienic, you know, for transport, even some some space Tupperware or something? No, no, it's it's just sacks, Dave. It sort of brings me out of the story a little bit. I'll, I'll see you and I'll agree with you on the sacks. The other point, though, I think is actually quite clever because it says something about humans versus Daleks in mm-hmm. that humans are now very comfortable with their technology. They expect it to be able to go and use wonderful electronic stuff and they can sit by and have a pina colada and watch the machines sort this perineum. And then when the, right. pow- when the power goes out, they're like, oh, that's us stuff then. But whereas when the Daleks go out, they're like, oh, we can't do this, we'll do this. If we can't do this, we'll do this. Oh, we have got no power and no sophisticated machinery. Guess what we have got? A bunch of excellence to make slaves and do it the old-fashioned way. Let's go. And the Daleks are actually cleverer and more adaptable than humans are. That's a good way of looking at it. I like that. See, I think there's a lot more going on here. Yeah. Question without notice. Could this story work without the Daleks, Dave? Yes, it could. Mm, I think so too. I don't think it would be quite as exciting. I think they needed a level of menace in there. um, That the Exelons maybe don't quite provide on their own. Although they do get close. Well, we've got Exelons and we've got Fugitive Exelons, so we do sort of have two sides of the coin. That's true. And I've got to say, the way that the Exelons move and blend in with the surrounding, particularly in that first episode, Mm. again, we may be in a quarry, but we're in a very well-shot quarry with really clever costumes and designs where, where suddenly, like, genuinely, even as an adult, watching it on a big television in... Um, Vidfire and all, all the restoration stuff they've done to the DVD, there are still a couple of moments where I go, <gasps> that rock just moved. Oh my God, that's an Exelon. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's that good. And why are they in those dirty sacks? Are they like lepers or something? Like what, what, what's wrong with these people? You know, when you, you initially first see them, you know, you, you, you're very interested in them, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I think there's just a lot going on in this story, Dave. That's why I say, could you take the Daleks out? And I think it would still work because I think this story just has so much in it, especially for a four-parter. Yeah, I, I think it does. I think that although it first and foremost is a Terry Nation space adventure, which I'm totally here for, mm-hmm. I think that there is a bit more under the surface than perhaps fans have appreciated. Mm. You wanted to talk plague as well. I did. What's your take on the premise of the story? Is it that there actually was an actual space plague that did affect humans and Daleks and they're all over the antidote? Or is it what I always assumed as a kid, that the Daleks had set the plague about and they were just waiting for humanity to fall and then their intel's gone, hang on, they've found a cure, they've an expedition off, quick, stop them getting the cure and that's what the Daleks are there for. I think it's the former, because the Daleks do go to such lengths to mine the stuff for themselves. So I think I've got to go with me watching it as an adult, taking the former view, I think. 
Yeah, I think that probably is the correct view, but given that the Daleks do fire a plague bomb or, or threaten to fire a plague bomb and we've seen them use plagues mm. in other stories, I, I don't think that my initial take is unrealistic either. No. Well, Terry loves a good plague. Terry does love a good plague, so <laughs> it's possible. Um, I might even put a poll up about that after this episode drops. Remind me to do that. All right. Now, Rob, I'm going to lead us off on the monster of Peladon. Sure. I went into this story having not watched it for a very long time, certainly upwards of five years, probably a lot longer, which is a lot longer than any of the other stories of this season. Mm-hmm. I went in with the view this is probably the weakest of the Perpy stories, certainly bottom two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I just have this feeling your notes are going to be like mine. <laughs> As I watched part one, yes, I thought, this is better than I remembered. Oh God! Yeah, this is, go on. This is going okay. There's some there's some cool ideas in here. There's some cool aliens. There's a bit of action. This, this isn't a bad opener. Yeah. As I went on though, I remembered why I don't think this is very good. It gets very slow very quickly. There are a lot of conversations that happen again and again and mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things that just don't make sense. And uh, there's a, there's a big reason for a couple of those that I will get into but by the end of it i just thought this wasn't the utter snooze fest i remembered but it was very slow and dull and it is very weak compared to a lot of pertwee stories okay we we do have different points of view then oh good this is interesting you know everyone says this is the crap peladon story and godspeed if you choose to watch it and all of that stuff and they make it sound really really bad like Twin Dilemma bad. But, Dave, I think it's perfectly watchable and fine. Will I go on? Uh, just just for, for purposes of clarification for the, for the interest of the jury, um, when, <laughs> when you say that, are you saying, and it's kind of of the standard of the rest of the season, or are you saying, look, it's below the rest of the season, but it's fine? Yeah, more of the latter. Okay. But it's certainly, as I say, it's not Twin Dilemma bad. No, no, and, no. It, and if I sat down with a list of Doctor Who stories, I could find a ton of stuff that's worse than this. But people make it sound like this story is really, really, really bad. But I think you have, you know, this mystery of Agador is showing up. He's zapping people. You've got the new queen. She's quite interesting. The miners versus the royal guards. Eckersley and Alpha Centauri. They get paired off a lot. And they're such a strange couple. Yet it it works, yeah. you know, for them to be having those all those conversations. And then halfway through, when the storyline still isn't played out, the ice warriors show up and you get a whole new credible storyline and the story gets a second wind. I think there's a lot going on. It's not something that takes, you know, some little simple thing and stretches it out, hoping to make six episodes work. I think there's enough content for the six episodes, Dave. You say it's slow in places. I don't mind it. It's not the quickest story I ever could watch. That's the war games. I can watch all 10 episodes of that and not feel that 10 episodes have gone by. But as a six parter, this is watchable. I'm okay with it. It's watchable. And and look, the, 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 the comment I guess I'm kind of heading for is, even if this is towards the bottom, if not the bottom of the Perwee era, that's kind of a reflection of how well the Perwee era does hold its standard. And, and mm-hmm. I'm willing to say that. There's a couple of fundamental things going on in the Monster of Peladon that are worthy of throwing out there for a start. The, the first is a bit of a misunderstanding of what the Curse of Peladon was, in that a lot of people 
even today say, oh, the curse of Peladon, that's a really clever analogy of the UK's going into the common market. And it's it's, it's actually really not. Um, mm. it's, it's a bit of a framing device that, hey, what if a planet wanted to join an intergalactic common market? What what would that look like? And then they kind of take the story in bizarre ways. But the, the the story is not really an analogy for that. You know, King Peladon is not Edward Heath. And mm-hmm. Islia is not Pompidou. And Alpha Centauri is not Helmut Schmidt. You know, like it's just not <laughs> a, a, an allegory in any sense. It's just a premise that kind of allows you to build a new world. Mm-hmm. I think they're like, well, didn't that work really well? So let's let's rip from the headlines again. I don't know, the miners' strike. Let's have a miners' strike going on. But again, it doesn't really go anywhere. It takes a long time to even get any sense of what the miners are unhappy about. Is it about pay? Is it about they're working too hard? Well, if they're working too hard, why don't well, they want the new machinery to make their lives easier? It's sort of a bit ambiguous for me. Mm. The second point I'll make, and, and this isn't necessarily a bad point, but it is a point in terms of where this story goes. Barry Letts, as we said, really capable producer. There's an argument he's the most effective producer in terms of actual producing of any that the show has ever had. And he is very smart in going, look, we need to have a cheap story in the season. He doesn't want it to be the big finale, so he makes sure that it's not. So he says, right, then we'll get the penultimate story and we'll, we'll make that a bit of a cheapie. And that's justified because he's then very clever and says, well, if we're doing a cheapie, let's make it a sequel because we can take all the Citadel models and all the Citadel sets and the Alpha Centauri Mm. costume all out of storage and suddenly we've saved a lot of money off the budget anyway. And look, it's a worthy decision because we've been saying all the way through this, look at that lush location footage, look at those extras. Like the money has been spent elsewhere in the season and I'm willing to cop with one cheapie for four really expensive ones. So I, I applaud it. But on the other hand, it does look a bit cheap sometimes. The Agador mm. costume looks like it was taken out of storage and didn't have a good time in those two years. A lot <laughs> of those sets, particularly the mining sets and the cor- corridors, Asixia's mm. helmet, you can see the paint peeling off it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it does look cheap, which doesn't help. Yeah. Now, look, going back to your first point, people will say, oh, yes, this is a comment or, or even a parody of, of the miners' strike. But here's the thing. I think there are more people watching this now, born long after that time, who just have no knowledge of that, particularly people in other countries, which aren't the UK. You know, so this whole thing gets made about it. But is it really something that even most people watching it today would nod and say, oh, yes, I see what Hales is doing there? You know, whether it, whether it's this with the uh, the minor strike or the, the other story with entering the um, the EU. You know, is, is that something people are even thinking about? Or is it just people who are really, really, really interested in the history of the show or in UK history in general? Yeah, look, I think that a lot of it does probably go over a modern audience's head or they think that it's the minor strike of the 80s because that's the right. one that kind of lives in pop culture and they don't realise there was actually one before. And, 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 and yeah, the show doesn't lean into the real an allegory of that either. I think if... Trisilligate was being used to power Peladon and the lack of it meant that they had to have, say, a three-day working week, you know, <laughs> you, you would start to go, oh, okay, they're, they're leaning into this. But I, I don't think that's quite explored. And, and that brings me to an, a, another negative I have, again, comparing it to Curse of Peladon, mm-hmm. in that I think this story makes Peladon feel smaller. In the Curse of Peladon, yep, this was the Citadel. It's where the rulers rule, but there was a real sense of, and there are the people out there. In this mm. one, the whole society, the whole world, all happens in one building and the mountain underneath. 
Yeah. And and that does to me make the universe and the, the, the world of the story feel a little bit smaller. Good point. Now, look, earlier I mentioned women's lib back in the Time Warrior, and we do get more women's lib in this story, but thankfully it's only really in a scene. And again, we often say the classic era did this stuff so much better than the Chibnall era, for example, <laughs> but 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 not here. No. <laughs> again, it's like, hey, tell the Queen about women's lib. What's women's lib? Well, let me tell you about women's lib. As, as so, written by a bunch of 45-year-old men. Yes, it feels so cack-handed. Rather than just Sarah saying to the Queen, I don't know, hey, don't let those blokes push you around, you're the Queen. And, you know, even if you weren't the Queen, you shouldn't let them push you around. Just some good, strong, general message like that. And some in the audience might even recognise that as being an aspect of women's lib. Instead, they just start using this this term to an alien queen. It's just so weird and sort of silly to be doing it. It really sticks out. Uh, mm. Yeah, it, it does. And I think it's not helped by the fact that we've sort of replaced one kind of wet monarch of Peladon with another. And so yes. it doesn't feel very new in that sense. And And when, you know, you think about the fact that if you were looking around the world, by this stage, I think we'd certainly had Indira Gandhi. We'd certainly had Golda Meir. Yeah. Mrs. Thatcher was, if not quite yet the leader of the opposition, very close to being it. I think I think she would have been just off that because mm-hmm. Ted Heath took them to the October 74 election. So, yeah, Mrs. Thatcher is just around the corner. But again, we've got a lot of female politicians. Like There, there are good women leader role models in the world at this time. And had Thalira started off as a powerful woman who is up against a very masculine, traditional society, that would have been a lot more interesting. And then seeing how Sarah worked into that would have been a lot more interesting than she's so wet she needs one of us to come and explain feminism to her. Yeah, and of course the big one, Betty Windsor, is on the throne of England. Well, that's of course very true. Um, I want to echo something you said. Donald G is fantastic in this. Mm-hmm. And particularly watching it, knowing that he's the traitor and the way that he's really worried about some things, not concerned at all about other things. He he plays it really well. Uh, the bit where he's happy for a few miners in part one to be killed by the ghost of Agador, but when his mate Vega Nexos is about to be killed, he's like, dude, don't, don't, don't go over there. Like, it's not that I know what's happening, but I kind of do. So, mate, I'm, okay, fine. You know, like he plays that really, really well and he's happy to let things sort of go. I don't think that the plot really quite kind of works because mm. Azixia and Eckersley want the Trisilicate really, really badly. So they shut down the production of the Trisilicate so that things get so bad that Azixia has to come in to start the production up again. It, 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 it's all a little bit of a mess. The, the timelines don't really quite work. I, I mean, I know what's happening, but I think it lacks some, some model shots and some contextual shots. So if we'd seen, for example, and, and look, this is the, the reality of it being on the cheapy, but if we'd yeah. seen the Ice Warrior fleet move towards Peladon after it's called in, and then we'd seen Azixir's ship land, and then Azixir walks through a door, you'd go, okay, you know, he's, he's, he's part of the Federation fleet that we're mm, expecting to call mm. him, and, and, and then you go, oh, but he's not. Whereas, as it is, it's just like, um, part four starter, we can now afford to pay Alan Bennion, so he's randomly just walked in. And I didn't get, as a kid particularly, that he was meant to be pretending to be the Federation troops. Oh, right, he, okay. He just, like, arrived, like, oh, well, the ice have been discovered, so in comes their commander. And I, I think it lacks that contextual shots that I think it would have had if it had more money. 
Mm, good point. But yeah, look, overall, I don't think this is as bad as people make out. If you're sitting out there and people are terrifying you about it on Twitter, just go and watch it. Look, I don't think it's great. I think it is a weak Pertwee story. Uh, this is the story where Pertwee's announcement had been made public. Right. And so that's where, as I understand it, first of all, he was starting to emotionally distance himself from the show and go, you know what, I'm not going to see all these people I've seen for five years in a couple of months, so I need to get used to that. But also, he was starting to get all the fan mail, like, Dear John Pertwee, I've just seen that you're leaving Doctor Who. Please don't. I love you, Roll. Please don't. Change your mind. And, you know, that would have mm-hmm. a real effect on an actor. And some people accuse him of phoning it in in this story. I don't think that's true. But I do think that he is a little bit flatter than usual. And in the same way, look, a weaker Pertwee story is still better than a lot of Doctor Who. And I, I stand by this being weak, but I stand by it being better John Pertwee, a little flatter than usual, is still pretty exuberant. Oh, yeah. And I, I think it adds a new sort of dimension to the character, whether you see him as, as maybe being a little drier or, or whatever it might be. You know, you can sort of just see it as a, a natural sort of part of the character in this story, perhaps. A little more world weariness. Yeah, a bit of that too. Which leads us into the planet of the spiders. Rob, mm. I spoke a lot about Peladon, so why don't you kick us off with this? Well, Dave, it's the grand finale. It's the one you hear about as a, as a kid or a young fan, if you haven't already watched it, of course. Uh, and finally, it arrives and you see it. You know, and if Invasion of the Dinosaurs is the one with the crap models, even though it's not the be-all and end-all of the story, Planet of the Spiders is the one that people say, that's got the big James Bond chase in it. And although it does take about half an episode, quite literally... In a six-parter like this, which has tons and tons of padding, it's maybe not quite as legendary as you think that scene. That was certainly the scene that everyone talked about before I saw this story, even more so than the regeneration scene at the end, which is a marvellous regeneration scene. So that was the thing I was always sort of sold on with this story. And again, yes, the chase takes half an episode, but it's maybe not the be-all, end-all, Dave. Uh, no, it's not. And look, if we're going to mention the chase, I've always found the chase quite exciting. I think it goes for exactly the right length of time. And it's not as though it's just a panda car and a Corolla for 15 minutes. It, they, <laughs> they change vehicles rel- relatively often, including ones that fly and including the Doctor's Hoomobile. So I, I think it's fine. And, and I'll use the line again. When I was a kid and the hovercraft drove over um, the tramp, I thought that was amazing. So it worked. It's like something from the goodies. Yeah, it, it really was. I mean, I, I just laughed terribly at that at the age of six or seven. I've said before, and I'll say it again, is this the best story that contains a regeneration? Obviously not. There are far better stories. War games, Cage of Androzani, etc. Mm-hmm. Is this the best story that is about a regeneration? I think so. I think there's only one in the history of the series that could compete for that title of being a finale that actively sums up and crystallizes and celebrates an era. You've got Barry Letts writing and directing this one. You've got a cast who are John Pertwee's favorite actors from the last five years, all back in all different sorts of roles. You've got Roger Delgado's widow comes back to be part of the celebration. Mike Yates is back. Una gets a return. And then you get that, thematic end of the Doctor's spiritual journey, which I think mm. is, is summed up. And his regeneration comes out of the themes of the era, which is a wonderful thing and very rarely happens, even down to his last moment. I think this is the most tear-jerking 
finale for a doctor. Never mind the big emotive long speeches with Murray Gold's orchestra playing. <laughs> Give me deathly silence as John Pertwee falls out of the TARDIS, says the TARDIS brought me home, and then his last line is a line that we've heard him use as a positive moment so many times before. While there's life, there's hope. Just to hear him say, while there's life there, and then watch the life disappear from him. Mm. That is so powerful. And I think it is the most effective summation of an era. I think only parting of the ways comes close to being a thematic full stop to a Doctor's era. And uh, I think that this is absolutely incredible. Full of a lot of problems we'll get to, but (laughs) I look over a lot of them because it just does its job so well. It does. It does. And look, we were talking about this earlier, so I'm going to throw it in before I forget. I like the way this takes what had happened to a supporting character in the form of Mike Yates and used it to sort of kick off the scenario of this story. I think if this was older Doctor Who, like it was the mid-60s, Invasion of the Dinosaurs would have been it for Mike. He would have betrayed everyone. That would have been the end of his character. We wouldn't have him come back like this. So it's, it's cool that it sort of fleshes out the world a bit and makes a supporting character feel far more three-dimensional. And in fact, there's a lot of strands running through the story, even like Joe sending the crystal back in the post. Yes. Uh, You know, I think for someone who's been into the show in general, or even just this era, there's a lot of fan service. Even though no one ever said that phrase back in 1974, there is fan service because, you know, Joe, she's not on screen, but she's a presence and she's sending the thing back and we, we find out that she's been doing some stuff with Cliff. And, you know, they read a bit of the letter, which is addressed to all of them, to the Doctor, the Brigadier, to, to Yates, to Benton. It's marvellous when they do stuff like that. I, I believe we would call it the rewarding for the long-term viewer. And and, and, and and that's and that's how it worked for me. I, I, again, as somebody who was watching this show passionately as a young boy, to suddenly get a reference to Joe Grant or that's the crystal. It, it again felt like a world. But but I also like, as you said about Mike Yates, Mike does get to be redeemed. He gets to show that he is a good person, but he's yeah. not forgiven. It's not mm. as though they say, oh, you know what, Mike? Come back in the unit. You can be a captain again. Let's forget about all that nonsense where you almost wiped out humanity. He still he still carries the the consequences of his bad decisions, but we get to see that Mike deep down is a good man. Yeah, and has a good car. Has a very good car. (laughs) I quite like the car. Hmm. Barry Letts was known as somebody who would experiment visually and try a lot of things, and it didn't always work. And I said this was a good summation of the era. It's a good summation of the good and the bad of the era, because I think there are some visuals here that they are frankly just a little bit too ambitious i think Mm. most of the spiders don't work that well particularly the early ones however the big spider model uh the one that sits on sarah's back at the end of part five is bloody terrifying Mm -hmm. and the and the great one in the cave of crystals that is a wonderful image it's clearly a fake spider but it just kind of works the way it's shot the way it's shot and the fact that the Pertwee Doctor, who is being a very arrogant Doctor, a very confident Doctor, to see him genuinely terrified, hmm. that is actually incredibly effective. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah, when you see a lot of spiders in the same room together, it's just like a lot of 
just a lot of little models sort of <laughs> yeah that doesn't work at all but yeah that that close up the voice lets it down to some degree i mean i mean rob what what is a spider meant to sound like <laughs> i don't bloody know you know so i know how ridiculous i am in even saying that but the the, the sing-songy kind of high-pitched voice i'm i'm not quite sure it sells it quite well. no and there is that scene after the great one's been killed where they cut to the council of spiders and it basically it's just a whole bunch of spider models sort of like thrown slightly at Kielter and then the camera yes. shaking and we're meant to go these are spiders all in peril it's like no okay you know I, I, I get you can't have 40 animatronic spiders and that's fine um, but it does just look like a bunch of rubber spiders just sort of like being thrown at the room mm. there's some CSO that doesn't work some of the stuff in the village does not have the best acting in the series shall we say yeah I, I find all that section actually quite boring to be honest. Yeah, I think that is easily the weakest part of the story and it does drag a little bit there. But I, I do forgive it because the opening and the closing stuff is is really, really good. I want to talk about the Doctor because if ever you want evidence that the Doctor is not a morally perfect character and he's not the moral compass by which you should live your life, mm-hmm. it is put very clearly here. The Doctor is a good person, but he's an alien and he has flaws and he is greedy sometimes and he is arrogant sometimes not just in the way that he acts. You know, he can be an arrogant doctor. I, I enjoy that. Some people don't. But he can sometimes be forgetful of other people and forgetful of the consequences because he's so hell-bent on what he wants to do. Mm. And, and I like the doctor as an alien, and I think it's really effective here. And that, that causes the regeneration, as I said, is, is really effective. And the character of Campo, who guides him spiritually towards that journey. And again, he doesn't sit there and point a finger and go, Doctor, I'm going to tell you why you're flawed. He lets the Mm. Doctor realise, you're right, I've got these flaws and I've got to make amends for that. Well, isn't there even a line about how he stole the crystal and and the Doctor doesn't even seem to consider that he stole? Like, oh, I, I guess I did. Like, he hadn't even considered that as a possibility? Yes, there is, yes. Mm. Yeah, I mean, even that's a kind of arrogance in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And you've got a villain in Lupton who doesn't want to take over the world. He's just really pissed off that after working really hard, he got the sack and got made Mm. redundant. And he just wants everybody to go get stuffed. (laughs) And and that's such a cool idea for a villain. (laughs) It's it's realistic. It it is. Although, unlike the novel, he doesn't get eaten on screen in this one. Mm, True. (laughs) But yeah, I I, 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 I do like all those characters. I think it just works so well. I like the character of Tommy. I know some people have said that his portrayal or depiction is problematic, but I think he's clearly shown to be the moral heart of the story and his genuine bewilderment when he is, and this is where people would say, you know, he doesn't need to be cured. Okay, yeah, no, I understand that. He, he doesn't need to be cured, but, but there is a change made to his... Um, his mind by the crystal and he's now able to learn and understand in a way he couldn't before Mm. and the way that's played as well is is just so good i I really like it i i I do understand why people don't but i like it well i think there was a line there is a line from sarah to him like you're 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 not normal or something you're you're, you're normal now or something yeah, that's it. Yeah, and and I thought, ooh, oh, I'm not sure we do that today, but the actual change in him, yeah, I don't see it as you know him being cured 
per se. I see it as just part of the story. Yeah, and, and uh, I agree with the line you highlighted being a bit of a moment, but it is followed up by the, you're just like everybody else. I sincerely hope not. Um, That's right, he has that really clever comeback. He has that really clever comeback. So I, I think that you need to sort of see what they're trying to do, and I think it does, does work, and, and, and the actor mm. makes it work. Yeah, agree. So Dave, all up, I don't think The Pert goes out on a great story. It certainly has fun moments. It's generally trying to be something. And the death slash regeneration scene is still amazing today. But across the six parts as an overall story, I don't think it really gets there. We mentioned earlier, it's no Caves of Androzani. It's no War Games. It's no Bad Wolf Parting of the Ways. I don't even think it's a Logopolis. It gets remembered for the regeneration scene. It gets remembered for the chase. Maybe it gets remembered for, you know, the spiders on people's backs. But does it get remembered as an overall great story? I don't think it does. No, no, I think that's quite fair. I think that this is in the weaker half of the season. I think there are three absolute belters uh, and then Peladon's quite weak and this is somewhere between those in in my view. Mm -hmm. But again, Caves of Androzani... Amazing spectacle, action, exciting, wonderful piece of television. Is it about anything? No, not really. <laughs> this, yep, it's got its flaws. It's got some special effects that don't work. It sags in the middle. It's not a perfect action story and excitement. But I regard it and appreciate it so very much as a summing up of a really positive era, an era that I love, a doctor that I love. And I do think that. You're right, the regeneration scene is carrying a lot of water for this story, but it is, for me, the most tear-jerking and emotional and well-written of the regenerations the Doctors have. Yeah, look, I I do love the regeneration scene. I think what's carrying you through this, though, is because you loved Pertwee so much, whereas I've had this more problematic sort of relationship with the character. I do kind of like Pertwee now. But it's taken a long time to happen, and it still hasn't quite fully happened. Absolutely. No, I think I think that's actually a really, really good comment to wrap up that story. Pulling back to the whole season, though, oh, I think yeah. this, is, this is such a good, enjoyable season. Yes. And I think it is in some ways perhaps missed or ignored by fandom, perhaps because dinosaurs has a bad reputation peldon has a bad reputation spiders has a mixed reputation death to the daleks is i think kind of sneered down on uh, i don't think correctly but it probably kind of is so i think that's probably a bit of a problem for it but also because it's not seasons eight nine ten mm-hmm. i think it kind of gets seen as you know the bad season at the end of the year you know joe's gone unit's not really around anymore roger delgado's passed away the the, mm. the opening credits are different this is a sort of an adjunct to the pertwee era it's not real pertwee mm. and, and it's dismissed a bit because of that and i think that's really unfortunate because i think it is an incredible enjoyable season that i have had huge fun watching again yeah, look, does he have better seasons? Of course he, he does. does. I mean, even season 10, immediately before this one, is a beauty. But I, I don't find I need to push season 11 down to big any of the others no. up. I think it's a good season. Is it really, really great? No. Did the Pert stay on a year too long? Maybe he did. Although I do like seeing him with, with um, Elizabeth Sladen for a bit of variety. I think he has a pretty amazing final season when you look at the writers. I mean, my God, he's got a Holmes, he's got a Hulk, and he's got a nation story in one season. Yes. 
Uh, you know, so it's it's not quite as bad as people make out this season, I don't think. I, I think that I am better disposed to this than you. I think it is actually a great season. Really? So okay. so that's that's fine. We've arrived at slightly different places, but both positive. Yeah, there are, there are certainly some stories in here I really quite like and uh, and some others. Fair <laughs> enough. I think that's a good place good place to end. Listeners, let us know what you thought. But uh, I just really enjoyed watching this season again. And perhaps part of it is because this was Doctor Who for me when I was six. And maybe going back mm. to what I said in our, our mini topics, maybe there is a bit of that nostalgia bug working its way for me here. You know, I... I watched the invasion of the dinosaurs, and as an adult, I do appreciate the writing. I do appreciate the the message, but there's a part of me that can remember being a six year old watching a Tyrannosaurus on Doctor Who, and loving yeah. it. So that that might help as well. And look, that's a very positive note to finish up on. So mm-hmm. as we're wrapping up, a couple of things to mention. For those yes. who haven't seen it, our Book of Boba Fett review, where we were joined by Richard from Spacefall, is out, and we had a good conversation about that. I certainly enjoyed having that conversation. Rob, what did you want to add? I just wanted to quickly add another plug for YouTube. This time it's a channel called Lo-Fi Life, which I've been putting out movie reviews on, five-minute movie reviews every Wednesday. And it's just something I just want to experiment with, with video editing and, and writing scripts and things like that. I want to try and do a year's worth of reviews and see where we're at. We're a month into it, and most of my stuff's got between about 20 and 70 hits, except for one, which is a Death on the Nile review, the 1978 Death on the Nile movie. It's already well over 2,000 hits. So so I've done something right there. Or maybe it's just interest in the new Death on the Nile movie. I'd say it's probably the latter. It's been very interesting for me to do this. Please check out my channel if you like new movies, old movies. I talk about all sorts of stuff on there. Fantastic. So, what are we going to do next month? Dave, we've had some fun in the past putting new Who Doctors into Classic Who, Classic Doctors into New Who. We've done TARDIS teams in TV shows. So why don't we take that to the uh, nth degree and do TARDIS teams in movies? Absolutely. So, I don't know, just thinking off the top of my head, it's Braveheart done as a Hartnell historical. Uh <laughs> Wow. <laughs> that probably won't be one of my picks because I can't stand Braveheart. But <laughs> but that's just a really bad example of what we're talking about. So, yeah, TARDIS teams in movies is what we're coming up with next time. Yes. If you have any out there that you'd like to throw our way to, email us hello at the dwshow.net. Absolutely. But, look, it's been a great fun talking about this episode. I've enjoyed it. But uh, we've been here for plenty of time. It's time to go. We'll see you next month. I've been Dave. And I've been Rob. And we'll talk again soon. Bye-bye. Goodbye. You've been listening to The Doctor Show with Rob and Dave. Find us online by searching for The Doctor Show. We also love it when you write in. Drop us a line anytime at hello at the dwshow.net. <laughs>